Paranormal Investigations Hawaii from the case files of Harry Wong, Paranormal Investigator, Season 1, Episode 4, The Ghost Dog of the Contessa, Part 2. Aloha. If you remember when we left off last week, I was in the middle of a case which left several questions due to be answered. Why was there a ghost dog living in my friend's apartment? How do I find a musician who was supposed to be dead for the last 50 years? And most importantly, why do middle-aged women like boy bands? By the end of this episode, Two of these mysteries will be resolved, while one will forever haunt our nightmares. Now, I hope you're ready for part two, the conclusion to The Ghost Dog of the Contessa. It was a clear day and the drive was pleasant. We shared some small talk on the way. Sharon told me about her family, how she got into a few relationship in the years since, but None of those worked out long term. The only good thing to come out of those failed relationships was her daughter, who was a successful musician in her own right, working in LA. I told her a little about what I do. I didn't want to scare her, but to reassure her that I knew what I was doing. Now, if only I could reassure myself. We reached the farm after about an hour's drive. It looked like it had been abandoned a long time ago. There was a makeshift fence along the perimeter which had fallen off the posts in several sections, big enough for us to drive through. The grass was several feet high. The place looked like a scene out of Children of the Corn, except substitute sugarcane for corn. I noticed there was one section of grass that was flattened that led from the road to some small crumbling structures, a barn and a house. We followed the path to the front of the house and got out to look around. I walked around the barn and saw a car parked inside. There was an attempt to hide it with tarps so that it wasn't visible from the road. The car was a Chevy hybrid, so it needed electricity to keep it powered. I looked around and found it was connected to a power outlet. Someone lived here. I ran back out to warn Sharon, but she had already entered the house. I ran to catch up with her. I rushed through the front door and saw Sharon in the living room. And she wasn't alone. An old man stood near her. He held a baseball bat as a weapon towards her and then towards me when I entered the house. He looked at us with a wild, desperate expression. Sharon turned to me with a shocked look. The man appeared to be at least 70 years old. He was grizzled and unshaven. He had long, wild, unkempt white hair and wore faded and ripped t-shirt and jeans. Sharon, back away towards me. I cautioned her. She didn't listen. It's Ed, she said with a mix of joy and anticipation. Ed just continued staring at her, then at me. Sharon, it may be him, but we don't know the state of his mind. Fifty years have passed. He may be a totally different person. Please, back away until we find out more. She didn't move from her position, but instead approached Ed. He stared at her with crazy, questioning eyes. She then slowly grabbed the bat and eased it out of Ed's trembling hands. He let go of the bat and looked at her as if for the first time. Sharon? Sharon nodded and smiled at him. Recognition and surprise showed on his face, followed by tears. They both hugged and cried. I also found I had something wet in my eyes, which I wiped off. The house was in even worse shape inside than outside. The roof crumbled in several sections, which allowed the elements to invade the interior. Leaves and tree branches littered the floor throughout the house. Ed led us past this obstacle course into the kitchen, which was the least affected room. 
we sat at the table. Do you know why we're here? I can guess. I've been trying to outrun my past mistakes for a long time. I'm thinking it's finally caught up to me. I don't want to get anyone hurt because of me, so I'm thinking it's time to face the music, so to speak. Tell me what happened 50 years ago. I can't promise you anything, but we may be able to find a way to get you out of this. Ed's eyes lit up at this. It was one thing he was sorely missing all these years. Hope. I was 23 years old, right out of college. I loved music, especially the contemporary Hawaiian music that was happening at that time, the mid-70s. I learned how to play guitar. I learned how to play the classic Hawaiian songs, the contemporary songs of the day, and I started busking on Kalakaua Avenue. It was a great time for music. The tourists loved us, and we got some fans. I put a band together, and we started playing in the smaller clubs and KBs, you know, the Korean hostess bars. I received some interest from an A&R guy at Passion Orange Records. His name was Kainoa Mandin. He was only a few years older than me, but had become a well-known rep in the industry already with several successful signings. But they needed original music for a record, and I'd never written anything before. I attempted to write my own music, but it was slow going. I had no idea about song structure, how to write verses, choruses, bridges, none of that. I just knew that I loved to play and sing. They gave me a month to show them what I had written so far. I actually stalled for an extra two weeks, but they finally called me into their studio and I played them the two songs that I wrote. He told me my songs were not original, the melodies didn't have any hooks, and they were derivative of what was already being played on the radio. Kainoa said the top brass were losing interest in me, so I asked them to just give me one more week and I'll have something for them worth listening to. I said that to buy time, but I had no idea how to write the music they wanted. Kainoa said okay, I would come back in one week and then I would either make it or break it. I left the studio, but Kainoa caught up with me outside. He said he had another option he could offer. This was outside the scope of the record company, but it was something he would be willing to do for me out of the goodness of his own heart. I should have known that line was always a lie. There was always something someone wanted in return for you. I was skeptical, but I thought I had nothing left to lose. He told me to meet him at midnight outside the old Oahu Railway offices in Eva. I thought that was a strange time and place to meet, but he assured me that this was safe. I would have done almost anything to get this record deal, so I agreed to meet him. I arrived a few minutes shy of midnight. It was raining, but there was a full moon, so I could see Kainoa waiting for me at the start of the rail line. Most people were not aware that Hawaii used to have trains that carried people and goods around the island. They still run as a tourist attraction, but there's a lot of history and mojo there at the rail yard. I think that's why they picked that spot to meet. They? Patience, sweetheart. I'm getting to the good parts. Anyways, like I said, I saw Kainoa in the moonlight, but there was someone with him. At first, I couldn't get a good look at this person. Even in the moonlight, he looked like he was standing in the shadows. He was tall, well over six feet. As I approached closer, I noticed he was dressed in a long, dark coat, top hat, gloves, scarf, and carried a cane. He also wore dark sunglasses, which I thought was strange at this time of night. Then a wave of cold fear gripped me. I don't know if it was me or if the weather did something to the air, but I shivered with cold fear and apprehension as I reached him. Sharon visibly shook at the description of the man. I've, I've met him. Ed looked sadly at Sharon. I'm sorry I dragged you into this. He held her hand. As I reached them, Kainoa spoke first. Glad you made it, Ed. He smiled at me 
but his voice betrayed his nervous apprehension, which only heightened my discomfort. Um, I, I brought someone who'd be willing to help you out. This is Mr. A. I turned to look at Mr. A. He was even taller up close, and I noticed that the cane handle he held was in the shape of a goat's head. I made the mistake of looking directly into his eyes, which were hidden behind sunglasses. They glowed a dark red color, which increased in intensity the longer I looked at them. I tried to look away, but found myself frozen. I could not turn my head or avert my eyes. His gaze bore into me, as if a million parasites invaded my mind and started eating my brains from the inside out. I felt an uncontrollable urge to scream when suddenly the fear of being violated was gone. I looked away with great comfort and almost fell over. I breathed a sigh of relief and heard a chuckle come from Mr. A. I didn't dare to look into his eyes again when he spoke. His voice was low and guttural and grated my ears like sandpaper on chalkboard. Mr. Mandon tells me you want to make a deal. You want to be rich and famous, is that right? I have exactly what you need at a very low price. In fact, you won't have to pay up until well after you've enjoyed the fruits of your desires. You can't beat a deal like this with a dead cat, although some have tried. Here's how it works. You tell me what you want, I give you what you want. It can't get any easier than that, right? Then a few years or so down the line, when you've enjoyed all the benefits of our deal, I'll come to you for payment. Easy peasy, right? All I need for you to do is sign this agreement. He then pulled out an old looking piece of paper. I think they called them parchments. Something like one of those historical documents you would see in a museum. I read it once, then again, and still I didn't fully comprehend what it said. One word stood out though. Anima. At first I thought it meant animal, but I remembered from my one year of Latin that it meant soul. There was a signature line at the bottom of the contract. Even though there was a full moon, the letters glowed in the dark so I could read them without any problems. Then everything fell into place. The location of the railway was a crossroad. The tall stranger was the devil, and the price of fame and fortune was my very soul. Uh, can I get my lawyer to read this first? I asked, trying to buy time while everything sank in. Mr. A started laughing uncontrollably for what seemed like an eternity. Kainoa quickly followed with a fake, nervous laugh. When the laughter died down, Kainoa said nervously, It's a, a standard contract. A lot of musicians have signed it. It's no big deal. He couldn't look me in the eye. Mr. A added between giggles. The deal is good for tonight only. After I walk away, you won't be able to get this deal again. Listen, I'll tell you what. I know what you're thinking. Don't I need my soul? Isn't it an important part of my being? And my answer to you is, you won't need it after you're dead, right? This is no different than donating your organs after you die. Are you going to need your heart, your lungs after you die? No way, Jose. Well, it's almost, not quite really, but almost exactly the same thing for the soul. If you won't be using it, why not give it to someone who can make use out of it? You'll be helping to train and feed uh, and nurture young demons with this donation. In return, I promise you will be granted the ability to write and record a hit song. This, I guarantee you, or I'll rip up the contract myself. This I swear by Lucifer's name. I, I, I don't know, I said. Mr. A's disposition changed instantly. His smile changed into a snarl. He glanced menacingly at me, then at Kainoa, who looked sick as if he were about to throw up. He then spoke up reluctantly. Ed, I, I know you're reluctant to sign this, but let me assure you, it works. Look at Lassie's Hoku winner, the Kapalama brothers. 
before they signed the contract. They were horrible. You wouldn't believe how out of tune, out of time they were. They couldn't write a hit song even if they were locked in a room with Carol King for a week. After they signed, they wrote the perfect song, Tantalus Moonlight, which rocketed up the charts. Next year, this could be you. He looked nervously at Mr. A, like a dog looking at his master for approval. I thought about it a long and hard, but I was afraid. I didn't think much of my soul. That concept was foreign to me, but I was concerned about my life and that of my family. I didn't want anything coming after my family and you, Sharon, if something went wrong. And honestly, I was terrified of Mr. A. I didn't know what he was, but I knew I wanted nothing to do with him. I was about to say no and walk out of there, but I don't know if it was my imagination, but I felt as if I couldn't move. My mind was in a fog. I looked up out of my peripheral vision and saw Mr. A was staring intently at me. I didn't want to lock eyes with him again. His eyes now glowed a bright red. Then I felt my hands move outside of my control. Kainua held out a small pin. I grabbed it with my left hand and I pricked my right index finger with it. I tried to stop my hands from moving, but I couldn't. They were not under my control. My right index finger bled and Mr. A held out the contract. I signed my name in blood. Then I felt control come flooding back to me. I dropped my hands immediately, but it was too late. I signed the contract. But you didn't sign it of your own volition. I know that now, but back then, I was still in a daze. And as far as they were concerned, I signed it and agreed to the terms of the contract. As soon as I got my senses back, I started to protest, but they were already gone. I was alone in the train yard. It started to rain, and I felt sick to my stomach. I left and drove home. My body felt drained. I passed out right after I arrived home and slept for 24 hours straight. Do you remember that night, Sharon? When I woke up, though, I felt great. I could barely remember what happened the night before. I just knew I had words and music inside me bursting to get out. I busted out my guitar and stayed in my room for five days straight writing songs. And the result of that was Kalakawa Avenue Blues. I remember that night. You had the 24-hour flu or something. You just said you had to work in the studio that night. Then during the week, I brought you food while you were locked away writing, but you barely ate anything. All you did was write. You didn't talk to me. You didn't shower. I was so worried about you. That was part of the deal. The entity you met who called himself Mr. A, that was the demon Azazel. He specialized in making deals. The stories you've heard about deals with the devil, that's him. He's actually a mid-level demon in the hierarchy of demonology. These demons competed with each other to see who can create the most chaos and destruction to gain favor with Lucifer. Azazel's shtick is to corrupt souls. He agrees to grant his victims some material desire in return for their immortal soul. Often, as in your case, He has to trick them into giving up their souls. It's cheating and he knows it, but he's not called the Prince of Lies for nothing. Actually, it's his immediate superior who's the Prince of Lies, but that may well apply to all of them. I've thought about that night all these years. I keep replaying that night in my mind to make sure I didn't misremember, but I know that Azazel cheated me. What can I do? Well, it's not like you can complain to his boss and get a refund. But, because he intended to cheat you in the first place, there may be something they overlook. Some loophole to get you out of the contract. Both Ed and Sharon gave me a puzzled expression. There are universal laws that govern magical and supernatural transactions. Azazel relied on his victim's ignorance of these laws. I mean, unless you're a practitioner of the dark arts, You wouldn't know you can get a refund on your soul, right? They still look puzzled. I continued. There's a clause you can invoke that Azazel cannot refuse. That's the termination for breach of free will clause. Since he magically coerced you into sending the contract, 
and you did not do it out of your own free will, he must honor this clause and terminate the contract. But he won't make it easy. He's going to try to lie and cheat his way out of complying. We'll anticipate that and call him out on his lies until he has no recourse but to rip up the contract. Do you think this will work? Well, I never done it before, but it's Ed's and Claire's only way out. Ed looked at Sharon as if seeing her for the first time. I'm sorry I got you into this. I'm sorry we didn't have a life together because of my greed. But I was convinced that I was nothing, a nobody. I was driven to succeed any way I could. I was going to prove my parents wrong, but instead, I proved them right. I was nobody for the last 50 years. Ed said as tears welled up in his eyes. You silly old goat. We had each other and that was everything we needed. That was the only thing of importance. You, me, and Claire. I know that now. I'll do whatever it takes to get that back. To get you back. If you'll have me again, that is. Of course. We've lost all this time. We don't have any more time to lose. Sharon said as she hugged Ed. And they stayed that way for several minutes. I walked away to give them some privacy and to wipe this sudden wetness out of my eyes. Okay, what do we do? I've spent 50 years running from this, running from my mistakes, losing out on my life with Sharon. I'm finished running. I'll do whatever it takes to get my soul back. Once you emerge out of hiding, Azazel will come looking for you. Then we'll spring our plan into action. I said with much confidence as I could muster. Now, I just gotta figure out what that plan was. Sharon took Ed back to her place to stay. She wasn't gonna lose him now that she found him again. And that dilapidated house of his was ready to collapse at any time. I did some research and found that Kainoa Mandan, the former record company exec who sent Ed and probably a dozen other musicians to Azazel, was still alive and working as a talent agent. His website said that he finds raw talent and molds them into stars. In other words, he's still working for Azazel. This was my entry point. I sent him some bogus info about a potential client to his contact page. To my surprise, he immediately sent me a reply to set up a meeting for this afternoon. I found the Mandan Talent Agency in an older two-story building in the Nimitz area, which also housed plumbing, roofing, and other contracting businesses. This was an isolated industrial area with warehouses and a few businesses scattered here and there, where even I wouldn't want to be caught out late at night. I walked up a rickety flight of stairs to the second floor, and it was the first office on the right. The door read, Mandan Talent Agency in faded paint that hadn't been touched up for years. I opened the door and walked in. There was a reception area and a door to a back office. The reception desk was empty. A sign on the desk read, ring bell for service. So I did. Two long minutes passed. When no one came out, I rang the bell again and waited. The walls were filled with autograph headshots of local musicians, actors, beauty pageant winners from the 70s up to today. Gun fun it. I have the CDs for several of these musicians too. Mandan and Azazo have been very busy for the past few decades. I had to stop them from cheating anyone else out of their immortal souls. I was about to ring the bell again when the back office opened and a man who looked like he was in his mid-forties greeted me. He was tall, dark complexion, salt and pepper hair, and wore an expensive shirt and tie, which is a rarity in Hawaii unless you are a lawyer, along with dress slacks and wingtip shoes. Mandan was supposed to be in his seventies, and yet he looked younger than me. Now I knew what his payment for bringing victims to Azazel was. Aloha, you must be Harry. Sorry about that. I was on the phone with a producer trying to make sure they get the mix correct for the next Jay Shigimoto album. Wow, you represent Jay Shigimoto? 
I said, somewhat starstruck, he was a world-renowned ukulele wizard. I had all his CDs. Absolutely. I only represent the best talent from Hawaii, and you could be one of them if I'm not mistaken, Harry. He sat behind the reception desk and motioned for me to sit in the opposite chair. Time to set the trap. I was referred to you by a friend, Ed Akau. At the mention of Ed, Mandan's attention ratcheted up a few notches. You know Ed? Yeah, he's my old family friend. He was no longer in the business, but he recommended you as the man to see. I understand you made Ed a star. Oh, yeah, but that was a long time ago. Do you know where Ed is? I'd like to catch up with him. We thought he was dead. We hadn't heard from him for years. He started fidgeting in his seat. He was as agitated as a vegetarian in a butcher shop. Sure, I can put you in touch with him, but first, you're going to make me a star, right? I know, I'm not a pretty boy like some of those Korean boy bands, but I do a mean Sinatra impression. There must be a market for older singers who look their age, have wrinkles, a dad bod, gray hair, and erectile dysfunction, right? There must be a nursing home audience you can tap into. I mean, they got nothing better to do, right? I wanted to see how far I could take this before he brought the subject back to Ed. Uh, uh, okay, I'll look into that. Can you tell me where Ed is right now? I really want to catch up. He, he has a large amount of money due him from the accumulated residuals over the years. I guarantee I can get you into that nursing home circuit right after I take care of Ed. But don't you want to hear me sing? Mandon started to say something, but I cut him off. Here's my rendition of My Way by Sinatra. I sang the Sid Vicious version instead. Think of the most horrible audition in American Idol history to get an idea of how bad I tried to make it. No, 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 stop. Please stop. Ah! He groaned and put up his arms to stop me. I was afraid he would physically restrain me if I didn't stop singing. I was actually glad I stopped because I was hurting my own ears. Not bad, huh? So, when does the money start rolling in? I got my eye on a Lambo and some sweet nursing home loving. Okay, okay, not so fast. You definitely got something there, Harry. I'm going to be honest with you. Mandan lied and then looked at me intensely. You tell me where Ed is and I'm going to make you the biggest star on the nursing home circuit. Wow, that's an offer I cannot refuse. Tell you what, I understand I have to sign a contract with you and your partner. I can bring Ed along and you guys can reminisce about the good old days. You know about the contract and the terms? Of course. I get money, adoration, and sweet okole now. And when I die, you can have what's left. Sounds like a no-brainer to me. And, spoiler alert, I don't need anything after I die. <laughs> Mandan let slip a puzzle expression, which then turned into a sly smile, then back to neutral. Okay. Bring Ed and meet me at the old Oahu Railway Station in Eva at midnight tonight. I know it's a weird time, but my partner works strange hours, and that's the only time he's available. You good with that? I'm good as rice and poke, I said, attempting to keep up my ruse of being kind of dumb. People tell me I'm really good at pretending to be dumb for some reason. We'll see you at midnight then, I added, then shook hands and left. Everything was proceeding according to plan so far. In my experience, that's how you know something will probably go wrong just when you least expect it. The night was pitch black when we arrived at the Oahu Railway. A new moon was still hidden behind dark, menacing clouds. Sharon asked to come along, but both Ed and I nixed that idea. We already had our hands full without having to worry about her too. We arrived an hour early to make sure we got our bearings. Ed showed me where he met Mandan and Azazel all those years ago. Everything looks exactly the same as I remember it. They will be waiting for us at the entrance to the station office. Right there. Ed pointed to an area 20 feet ahead of us. Don't forget the plan, okay? 
don't go over it one more time. My memory isn't what it used to be. Okay, I was getting worried now. Well, I was already worried, but my worry meter just hit the top and broke wide open. I'm gonna argue that Azazel cheated and you did not actually agree to the contract. Then, I'm gonna invoke the termination for breach of free will clause. If we make sure our arguments are airtight, solid, and without any holes, Azazel will have no choice but to nullify the contract or risk the wrath of his master. If anything, Lucifer was a stickler for order, especially among his underlings. Egg gave me a nervous look and nodded. We were ready and waited for Mandan and Azazel to arrive. We didn't have to wait long. At precisely midnight, a black fog fell over the station. Now, this is Hawaii. We're used to choking on fog from the volcanoes, not fog. The fog floated over the whole area and dissipated after only a few minutes. It left behind two dark figures standing at the front entrance, just as it predicted. I'm not gonna lie, I almost went shishi in my pants at the thought of facing Azazel again. I first encountered him a few years ago in a similar case, but I was still new to the PI biz and failed to secure my client's soul from the deal she made. I was not going to lose this one. Let me do the talking, okay? I told Ed with as straight a voice as I could manage. He nodded. He looked more afraid than I was. We approached him slowly as the new moon peeked out of the clouds. Azazel looked much different than from what Ed and Sharon described than from what he looked like at our previous encounter. He ditched the top hat steampunk look. Now, he looked like, and I kid you not, He looked like a cross between Steven Tyler and Keith Richards. He had neck-length, wild, dirty hair held in place by a headband, a leopard print vest on top of a dress shirt with the buttons open to display a chest full of cheap chains and necklaces, leather pants held up with a skull and crossbone belt buckle, and a pair of cowboy boots. Mandon looked like a star-struck groupie standing next to Azazel. How's it, Kanoa? I said to Mandan, trying my best to keep the growing panic out of my voice. I brought you what you asked for. Now, you gonna keep up your end of the deal, right? Mandan looked like a deer in headlights. He wanted to speak, but he kept quiet and waited for direction from Azazel. After what seemed like several minutes, but was actually only seconds, Azazel finally spoke in a deep, booming James Earl Jones-like voice that sounded like it both resonated in my head and in my ears at the same time. Thank you, Mr. Wong, for bringing back our prodigal son. He turned to Ed. Welcome back, Ed. We've missed you. You did a very foolish thing. You wasted whatever life you had left so that you could avoid paying off your debt to me. I would have gladly let you enjoy several more years of success before payment was due. You could have enjoyed another decade of hookers and blow. If anything, the 80s had the best hookers and blow. Right, Kanoa? Now, all that is over and your life is forfeit. Your soul is mine. I hope it was worth it. It gave me a panic look. I spoke up. Ah, wait, hang on one sec. I understand Ed sold his soul for services performed, but he was never given a copy of the contract. I believe that's a fundamental part of contract law. Otherwise, how would he know what he agreed to? So, by those terms, that contract is null and void. I said with such conviction, I almost convinced myself I was right. Azazel snapped his fingers and a piece of paper appeared in his hands. He handed it over to me. It felt like old parchment instead of paper. Even though it was still almost pitch dark, the words on the contract lit up in such a way that I could read it. I read it out loud. This is a binding contract between the esteemed Mr. A 
and the undersigned for services performed, which may include one more of the following. 1. Fame 2. Fortune 3. Beauty 4. Talent 5. Sexual Attraction I, the undersigned, hereby agree to surrender one soul on demand to the venerable Mr. A after services have been rendered. If payment is not made as directed, then the revered Mr. A or his agents may take any action necessary to secure a soul of equal or greater value from friends or relatives of the undersigned. Mr. A does not make any warranties about services performed. Any action you take is strictly at your own risk. Mr. A will not be liable for any losses and or damages in connection with the services provided. Ed's signature was on the signature line. I was about to argue that he was coerced into signing the contract. When I read through it again, I noticed the line, services performed, which may include one more of the following. Shouldn't that read one or more? I had it now. Um, Mr. A, I hate to say this, but there's a mistake on the contract. This wording here, one more of the following should read one or more of the following. The meaning as it is on the contract is that you owe Ed one more of the items on the list which Ed has not received. He got fame and talent, but he did not get fortune, beauty, and obviously not sexual attraction. Since the contract terms have passed and he has not received these items, you have breached the contract and thus it is null and void. I said with as much conviction as I could muster while hoping I wouldn't be turned into ashes at any moment. Azazel took the contract from my hand and looked it over carefully. He was not a poker player. His expression went from puzzled to incredulous to anger in the span of seconds. Kainoa seemed to have shrunk in size, both physically and metaphorically, and avoided eye contact with Azazel. Kainoa, you drafted this contract, correct? Uh, uh, um, I, I consulted with a lawyer who wrote it. I thought you read it and, and approved it. At this Azazel's eyes lit up until flames flew out from them. Flames also came out of his mouth as he roared. I gave you one job and you couldn't even do that. I'm leaving tonight with one soul. Whose will it be? He directed the last sentence to all of us. I took a few deep breaths and tried to speak without stammering. If if you pardon me, Mr. Azazel, your evilness, your malevolentitude. The Council of Hazarum has clear stipulation on how contract with nether beings are handled. This is a clear violation of the contract code, if you don't mind me saying, and thus is terminated for cause. And you have no contract with me, so... I nodded towards Kainoa. There's only one soul here you can legally take without causing an interdimensional incident. I'm not shitting you, but Azazel's flames shot out of every opening he had. Eyes, mouth, ears, nose, and other areas. And suddenly, the flames stopped as if he ran out of gas and he settled back to becoming just his regular scary self. It seems you have me in a bind, Mr. Wong. You know I could take everyone's souls here without any witnesses to the contrary. Well, not really. We've been recording this interaction just in case, knowing that you are the prince of lies. My associate is up back behind us with a night vision video camera, saving all this to a cloud backup with instructions to release the video if anything happened to us. I don't think your master Lucifer 
will be very happy that you broke the council's contract laws or for the publicity this would cause. I said breathlessly, we didn't allow Sharon to come with us to meet Azazel, but we did ask her to help with videotaping the interaction from a safe location. Azazel smiled, which was the most frightening thing he did all night. He looked most like a predator then. He had too many teeth and they were all sharp. He gestured at Ed's contract and it lit up in flames and burned into ashes until nothing remained. Ed was free. Kainoa Mandan was not so lucky. Azazel gestured and what I assumed to be Kainoa's contract appeared in Azazel's hands. Azazel turned to Kainoa. Luckily, I wrote your contract myself since it was a bit more complicated. You've served me well over these years, Mandan, but every dog has his day and your time appears to be up. He then symbolically signed the contract to signify it was due by drawing a flaming X on the bottom. I looked on in horror as Kanoa immediately fell writhing to the ground and aged from 40 years old to 80 years old in a matter of seconds. He continued aging past 80 years. His skin dried up and fell off him until only his skeleton was left, but his face remained locked into a silent scream. Then he disintegrated completely into dust and disappeared in a puff of smoke, which seeped downward into the ground. That was his soul reaching its final destination, I supposed. Now, if there aren't any more questions, I think our transaction is over. Azazel said cheerily. He had more mood changes than a teenage girl. One more thing. Do any of you need a job? A position just opened up in my organization. We both shouted, no, at the same time. I added, uh, your heinousness... What about the dog? You killed Ed's dog and left it without rest. The dog played a part in this contract and should therefore also be released as part of the contract too. Azazel gave us the mother of all eye rolls. It was almost like a Warner Brothers cartoon where his eyeballs lifted up over the top of his head and back down again. You humans and your animals... No other species keeps inferior species as companions. They are either food or pests to be dealt with accordingly. Very well. He snapped his fingers. Nothing seemed to happen, but I hope Kaleo was free and at peace now to forever roam the open fields of doggy heaven to chase birds and sniff butts. I was feeling good, feeling confident now. I had beaten the great Azazel, so I pressed my advantage and asked him what I've wanted to ask since our previous encounter years ago. Now, you seem to have grown over the years into a less abhorrent demon. What will it take to get a soul back from you? He looked both astonished and annoyed at the question. Uh Uh-oh, I shouldn't have pushed my luck. A soul for a soul. You know the terms. Do you have something to trade? The soul I want back belongs to a child. The rules don't apply to children. They don't have free will. My confidence now started to dissipate in Azazel's presence. I don't deal in souls of children. It is forbidden by the master. He almost sounded bored now. Ten years ago, you didn't take Timmy Santos out in Waianae. He was six years old, missing, abducted. There was evidence of a blood ritual, but his body was never found. The thought of that case made me angry enough to gain back some courage. 
read my lips, not me. Some other demon did it. Like you said, children don't have free will, so we don't get brownie points for their souls. The master forbids it and punishes those who break the rules, so it has to be some low-level demon who's vile and depraved enough to not care about eternal damnation. Yes, we have our own low-life scum who give demons a bad name. Let me throw you a bone. Look into Cambions. And with that, I bid you adieu. Alzezo snapped his fingers again and started to evaporate. Before he disappeared completely, I added one final jab. You should really rethink that Steven Tyler look. Or were you actually trying to look like a grandma? Azazel scowled and started to say something when he completely disappeared back into the netter world. Ed gave a sigh of relief. Then we both broke out in laughter, nervously at first, then in loud, howling, snorting, crying peals of laughter. Sharon ran down from her hiding place and gave us a bewildered look and started laughing along with us. Finally, after a few minutes, the laughter died down. I filed it into my memory banks to research what a Cambion was, but at least I finally had a starting point. Ed hugged Sharon, then hugged me. Mahalo, Sharon, Harry. You two saved me. You saved my soul. You not only gave me my life back, but you gave me my afterlife back too. I don't know what I can do to thank you. Come on, Uncle. You got 50 years of catching up to do with Sharon. I'll give you one piece of advice from experience. Go slow on the Viagra. A little goes a long way. We all laugh again until my stomach hurt and we left for home. Epilogue. It was about 2 a.m. when Ed, Sharon, and I returned to the Contessa and to Maher's condo, their former residence, to get some closure. Ferrari greeted us as we entered the apartment by promptly yapping his head off at the strangers until he got their scent. Ed and Sharon walked around the place, remembering their former lives there. It looks so different. Remember we used to sit on the balcony to watch the sunset? Sharon smiled and they hugged while looking out at the night sky. Then, a soft padding sound came from the spare bedroom. It wasn't Ferrari, who lay comfortably on the couch after Ed and Sharon passed his sniff test. The sound grew louder as something approached the living room. After what we just went through, I was fed up and not going to take any more supernatural BS. I stood in front of Ed and Sharon, ready to kick or call it, when suddenly, out of the shadows, Kalea walked into the living room. His ghost form was more transparent than before. We could almost see through him. He ran over to Ed and Sharon. When he saw them, they bent down and embraced Kalea while simultaneously laughing and crying. How? I thought Kalea was released by Azazel. Ed asked between ghost dog face licks. I don't know. I thought Kalea would be gone to doggy heaven. It wouldn't be a surprise for Azazel to renege on his promise. Then, Kalea's form started fading. Sharon's hands passed right through Kalea while petting him until he gave one last excited bark, then disappeared completely. He waited for you, I surmised. Azazel kept his part of the deal, but Kalea willed himself to remain on the earthly plane until he could say goodbye to you. He was a good dog after all. Ed and Sharon said goodbye to Kalea, had one last look around, then left for Sharon's home. Since then, I've returned to the Contessa several times to visit Mahia and even said hi to her neighbor Jessie and her son Brandon. I told Jessie to call me if she ever needed to talk about her bruises. She reluctantly agreed and took my business card. No one ever saw the ghost dog again.
Where did the doggy go? Little Brandon asked me during one of my visits. He went to doggy heaven, where all good dogs go, I answered. You have been listening to Paranormal Investigations Hawaii from the case files of Harry Wong, Paranormal Investigator, a fictional podcast. Waikiki, you gotta realize nothing comes for free.